flesh-craving trolls, child-eating cats, 13 days of thieving, and an undead horse girl looking to eat all of your food and drink all of your punch. Welcome to Fireside Fairy Tales, Creepy Creatures of Midwinter. The harvest has been reaped, the yule log is burning, and the death and rebirth of the sun is upon us. What better way to honor the tidings the past year has brought us than a day, or weeks, of merriment? Midwinter is here, and it's time to party. Our first stop is going to be in Iceland, and I have good news and bad news, depending on how you get your kicks during the Northern Hemisphere winter. In Iceland, Yule is celebrated from the 11th of December until the 6th of January, and includes 13 days of gift-giving. The bad news? You're gonna have to survive a macabre family of flesh-craving, thieving, retribution-seeking monsters. But maybe you go through that ordeal every year with your own family anyway, so these creepy Christmas critters won't be such a big deal. Oh, Iceland, what horrors you create on those long stretches of never-ending darkness. First up is the OG matriarch of Icelandic winter fiends, Grilla. One of the longest standing traditions in Iceland is Grilla, a giantess and a troll. Tales of Grilla began as oral accounts, with the earliest written references found in the 13th century in historic sagas and poems throughout the region. One reads, Here comes Grilla down in the field with 15 tails on her, while another describes, Down comes Grilla from the outer fields with 40 tails, a bag on her back, a knife in her hand, coming to carve out the stomachs of the children who cry for meat during Lent. Prior to the early 19th century, Grilla was regarded as the personification of the dark and merciless winter, a warning to all inhabitants of Iceland that Mother Nature rules the land. According to Terry Gunnell, head of the folklorist department at the University of Iceland, quote, the earliest celebrations of the season were viewed as a time not only to bring together relatives, living and deceased, but also elves, trolls, and other magical and spooky creatures believed to inhabit the landscape. Sometimes, these figures would visit in the flesh as masked figures going around to farms and houses during the season." End quote. Grilla's pervasive lore states that she collects whispers about misbehaving children all year long, and when winter falls over the land, Grilla sets out to gather her bounty. Her appetite for the flesh of naughty youths is insatiable, and each year she finds no shortage of her favorite snack. Collecting hooligan kids up in a sack, she then takes them back to her mountaintop home, cooks them in a pot, and turns them into a giant stew that will sustain her until the next winter. The legend of Grilla was so effective that in 1746, the Icelandic parliament forbade the use of her lore as a scare tactic. Instead of the threat of being eaten, children were given rotten potatoes in their shoes if they were naughty. Just because she was sanitized then, however, does not mean that her earlier roots were forgotten. Today, Grilla is a mainstay in Iceland and children are still well and truly terrified of her. The entire country honors her legend with her likeness found throughout Iceland in sculptures and other works of art. Though Grilla is said to have over 70 children, her most famous offspring 
are undoubtedly the 13 Yule Lads. Though they did not inherit cannibalism from their mother, the Icelandic Christmas trolls were still widely feared for their creepy and frankly revolting behavior. They were enormous, filthy, unintelligent creatures, humanoid and bestial in equal measure, who could only operate in the hours of night as lore dictates that the sun will cast them into stone. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce their Icelandic names, but accompanying each Yule Lad will be the dates that they are said to arrive and subsequently leave, followed by their stanza of the poem written by Johannes Urkutlum, in 1932 and translated by Halberg Halmansen. The first Yule Lad is Sheep Colt Claude, or Stiff Legs. He arrives on the 12th of December and leaves on Christmas Day, the 25th of December. The first of them was Sheep Cod Claude. He came stiff as wood to prey upon the farmer's sheep as far as he could. He wished to suck the ewes, but it was no accident. He couldn't, he had stiff knees, not too convenient. The second Yule Lad is Gullygawk. He arrives on the 13th of December and leaves the 26th of December. The second was Gullygawk, gray his head and mean. He snuck into the cow barn from his craggy ravine. Hiding in the stalls, he would steal the milk while the milkmaid gave the cowherd a meaningful smile. Ew. <laughs> the third Yule Lad is Stubby. He arrives the 14th of December and he leaves the 27th of December. Stubby was the third called a stunted little man who watched for every chance to whisk off a pan and scurrying away with it, he scraped off the bits that stuck to the bottom and brims, his favorites. Well, this may not seem like a terrible crime. Keep in mind that Iceland had no iron reserves or a mining industry of its own and goods like pots and pans had to be imported, making them really expensive. So if you have some bastard troll trying to thieve one, that's actually pretty heinous. It's like, you know, boosting your most expensive electronic from your house. The fourth Yule Lad is Spoon Liquor. He arrives on the 15th of December and leaves the 28th of December. The fourth was Spoon Liquor. Like Spindle, he was thin. He felt himself in clover when the cook wasn't in. Then stepping up, he grappled the stirring spoon with glee holding it with both hands, for it was slippery. The fifth Yule Lad is Pot Scraper. He arrives on the 16th of December, and he leaves the 29th of December. Pot Scraper, the fifth one, was a funny sort of chap. When kids were given scrapings, he'd come to the door and tap, and they would rush to see if there really was a guest. Then he hurried to the pot and had a scraping fest. The sixth Yule Lad is Bowl Liquor. He arrives the 17th of December, and he leaves the 30th of December. Bowl Liquor, the sixth one, was shockingly ill-bred. From underneath the bedsteads, he stuck his ugly head, and when the bowls were left to be licked by dog or cat, he snatched them for himself. He was sure good at that. Bro is a literal monster under the bed, snatching up a specific lidded bowl that was traditionally stored under the bed. Then we have Door Slammer, the seventh Yule Lad. He arrives on the 18th of December and he leaves the 31st of December. The seventh was Door Slammer, a sorry, vulgar chap. When people in the twilight would take a little nap, he was happy as a lark with the havoc he could wreak, slamming the doors and hearing the hinges on them squeak. 
The eighth Yule lad is Skir Gobbler, and Skir is a type of yogurt. He arrives on the 19th of December and he leaves January 1st. Skir Gobbler the eighth was an awful stupid bloke. He lambasted the skir tub till the lid on it broke. Then he stood there gobbling, his greed was well known, until about to burst he would bleat, howl, and groan. The ninth Yule lad is Sausage Swiper. He arrives on the 20th of December and leaves January 2nd. The ninth was Sausage Swiper, a shifty pilferer. He climbed up to the rafters and raided food from there. Sitting on a crossbeam in soot and in smoke, he fed himself on sausage, fit for gentlefolk. The tenth Yule Lad is Window Peeper, and isn't that just charming? <laughs> he arrives on the 21st of December, and he leaves on January 3rd. The tenth was Window Peeper, a weird little twit, who stepped up to the window and stole a peek through it. And whatever was inside to which his eye was drawn, he was most likely attempted to take later on. Ugh. Okay, that one. That one for me. That one's creepy. Then we have the 11th Yule Lad, Door Sniffer. He arrives on the 22nd of December and he leaves the 4th of January. 11th was Door Sniffer, adultish lad and gross. He never got a cold yet had a huge, sensitive nose. He caught the scent of lace bread while leagues away still and ran toward it weightless as wind over dale and hill. The twelfth you lad is Meathook. He arrives on the 23rd of December, which is St. Thorlak Day, the patron saint of Iceland, and he leaves on the 5th of January. Meathook, the twelfth one, his talent would display as soon as he arrived on St. Thorlak's Day. He snagged himself a morsel of meat of any sort, although his hook at times was a tiny bit short. And last, and certainly least, is Candle Beggar, or alternatively, he's called the Candle Stealer. He arrives on Christmas Eve, the 24th of December, and he leaves on the Epiphany, January 6th. The 13th was Candle Beggar, t'was cold, I believe, if he was not the last of the lot on Christmas Eve. He trailed after the little ones who, like happy sprites, ran about the farm with their fine tallow lights. Now, for further context, candles during this time were made of tallow, Tallow is like fat from a cow. Thus, technically, they are edible. So Candle Beggar was actually seen as the most sinister of the Yule Lads because he was snatching the only source of light from children and just hungrily gobbling it up. Grilla's family doesn't stop there. Oh, no. She also has the Yule Cat, my personal favorite. The Yule Cat's size can shift. He can be as small as he needs to to easily slip into the shadows or tower over houses to better catch and digest his prey of choice, which happens to be tasty, tasty children. Like many of our creepy Christmas critters, the Yule Cat's origins are muddled at best, with the earliest written record in Legends of Iceland, published in the 1800s. Many influences have been cited as a source of the Yule Cat's creation, and I'm partial to the Ghoul Cat, who buries itself into the ground at a cemetery. It stays buried for around three years before it springs forth fully grown to the size of a large dog and goes out to hunt, attacking sheep, birds, dogs, and humans. Its gaze is so evil and severe that it proves instantly fatal to all creatures. Pretty cool. However, what's most unique about the Yule Cat is its motivation for bloodlust. 
it will only kill children if they are wearing old clothes. Scholars believe the Yolcat's incentive is tightly wound in the practical need for warm clothes and a successful wool production. The exportation of wool began in the Middle Ages, and each year's production was vital to the Icelandic economy. Everyone in the family had to help, spinning, weaving, teasing, carding, and knitting wool, not to mention the rearing of livestock itself. These were all essential tasks directly related to the survival of the Icelandic people. The Yule Cat is essentially a scare tactic to ensure that no one slacked off as everyone needed to do their part in order for the whole community to survive. The Yule Cat is considered a quaint tradition, part of the rich tapestry of terror Icelandic folklore inspires, and in 2018, a 5 meter high, 6 meter long LED sculpture of the Yule Cat was placed up in downtown Reykjavik. I'm now I'm going to recite the Yule Cat poem by Johannes Koltum, which can also be heard as a song every December by beloved Icelandic songstress Björk. You all know the Yule Cat and that cat was huge indeed. People didn't know where he came from or where he went. He opened his glaring eyes wide, the two of them glowing bright. It took a really brave man to look straight into them. His whiskers, sharp as bristles, his back arched up high, and the claws of his hairy paws were a terrible sight. He gave a wave of his strong tail. He jumped, and he clawed, and he hissed, sometimes up in the valley, sometimes down by the shore. He roamed at large, hungry and evil, in the freezing Yule snow, in every home. People shuddered at his name. If one heard a pitiful meow, Something evil would happen soon. Everybody knew he hunted men, but didn't care for mice. He picked on the very poor that no new garments got, for Yule who toiled and lived in dire need. From them he took in one fell swoop their whole Yule dinner, always eating it himself if he possibly could. Hence it was that the women at their spinning wheel sat, spinning a colorful thread for a frock or a little sock. Because you mustn't let the cat get hold of the little children, they had to get something new to wear from the grown-ups each year. And when the lights came on on Yule Eve and the cat peered in, the little children stood rosy and proud, all dressed up in their new clothes. Some had gotten an apron and some had gotten shoes or something that was needed. That was all it took. For all who got something new to wear stayed out of that pussycat's grasp. He then gave an awful hiss, but went on his way. Whether he still exists, I do not know. But his visit would be in vain if next time everybody got something new to wear. Now you might be thinking of helping, where help is needed most. Perhaps you'll find some children that have nothing at all. Perhaps searching for those that live in a lightless world will give you a happy day and a merry, merry Yule. I don't know, man, that's kind of fucked up. Leaving Iceland and going to the Alsatian countryside. This is like the area between France and Germany. We're gonna be learning about Hans Trap, and I'm gonna start off with, with his little poem. Look, there comes Hans Trap. He has a nice pointed hat and a beard white like a rowan. He comes from the beautiful starry sky and brings children a rod who do not do singing and praying. Look, Hans Trap, we are so small and good and obedient at home. Shouldn't come with your stick because we can sing and pray too. So unlike the rest of our creepy critters here, Hans Trapp actually has origins in a real historical figure. Hans von Trotha was a knight who lived from about 1450 to 1503. 
He stood about six foot five and commanded two castles in the Palatine territory, which is, again, between France and Germany. But he became embroiled in an argument with the church over the property of one of them. The abbot would not concede certain properties to von Trotha, so the embittered knight stopped the supply of water to the nearby town of Weissenberg by building a dam. In retaliation, the abbot had the dam destroyed, which flooded the villagers' homes and businesses. The dispute continued until the knight was summoned by the Pope himself and, subsequently, excommunicated. Even in exile, the wily von Trotha did well for himself. He served the French royal court and was given the Chevalier d'Or by King Louis VII. Upon his death, all charges against him were reversed and forgiven. This, of course, did nothing to stop lore from taking root in the Palatine region during their own satanic panic. The legend went that this robber baron gained his wealth by means of dark magic and a demonic pact. He was excommunicated by the Pope for his involvement with Satan and the occult. Upon his return to France, Trapp learned that his land and property had been seized and that he was left without any money. The villagers of his home province shunned Trapp, and he was banished to the woods nearby across the border in Germany. Enraged, Hans Trapp doubled down on his occult studies and demonology. Revenge consumed his heart, and his isolation in the forest drove him mad. Soon, he began to crave human flesh. He became so obsessed with this new hunger that Trap came up with the idea to dress as a scarecrow, stuffing his clothing with straw and ragged clothing before going to wait in a field for the first of his victims. When a young shepherd boy passed through the field, Hans Trap leapt forward with a sharpened stick, killing the poor lad. Trap dragged the body back to his house, where he proceeded to butcher the corpse and prepare for his unholy feast. Just as Hans Trap was about to take his first bite of human flesh, God struck him down with a bolt of lightning. Since then, parents in the northeast region of France warned their children to be wary of, of Hans Trap's spirit that returns every Christmas in the form of a scarecrow and hood who will snatch up misbehaving children and take them to the forest never to be seen again. In neighboring Alsace, at the time of St. Nicholas, the name of Hans Trapp was used to frighten children and he was the one who accompanied the saint on Christmas replacing Krampus. Moral of the story, if you pick a bone with the Catholic Church, expect a healthy dose of satanic panic to be attached to your name. We end our special Creepy Creatures of Midwinter episode with a much more jolly specter, who is actually interactive. If you're in Wales between Christmas Eve and the Welsh New Year Hen Galen, chances are high you are going to encounter a very special horse. Dressed in her finest white dress, with her perpetually grinning skull adorned in ribbons, flowers, and bells, this Welsh party girl is here not for a long time, but for a good time. She is the Mari Lloyd of Wales. The origins of the Mari Lloyd's name and custom are deeply mysterious and ultimately lost to the ages. One Welsh translation of the name, Grey Mare, connects it to the heritage of pale horses in Celtic and British mythology, many of whom can cross over to the underworld. I'm partial to this interpretation, especially as the Mari Lloyd is accompanied by mummers, some of which represent the Mary dead, while others take on a more folk character role, such as Punch and Judy. There has been some speculation of a Christian association with the Virgin Mary, but I'm more inclined to believe any such association was ordained in order to wipe away any paganish vibes. 
Custom dictates that the Marie Lloyd goes from door to door trying to gain access through a series of verses. The inhabitants would subsequently reply with their own verses in a battle to outwit Mari and her gang with the purposes of preventing the revelers from entering. No matter how epic a rap battle takes place, Mari Lloyd is ultimately always granted access, as this confers luck on the household for the coming year and scares out anything unwanted from the previous. Once inside, more songs are sung. The horse might playfully chase some of the kitties or try to swipe a little trinket, and the group is given drinks and food before they move on to the next dwelling. This door-to-door -door party hopping was once referred to as wassailing. Originally, a wassail was a sugared and spiced drink made of mulled ale, curdled cream, roasted apples, and eggs. If you drank this, you were wassailing. The term wassailing actually comes from the Middle English wassail, meaning be in health. And you can hear it often in Here We Come a Wassailing, the Christmas Carol. And in fact, Christmas carolers evolved from this tradition. But the hobby horse style animus rituals can also be seen elsewhere, such as Old Tup the Ram in the East Midlands of England, the Wooden Hoodening of Kent, and the Lair Vane of the Isle of Man. I apologize profusely for butchering all of those beautiful languages. While the Marie Lloyd has always been viewed as a harbinger of comfort and joy, Welsh poet Vernon Watkins captured the more preternatural, eerie quality of this equine phantasmagoria in his long poem about her, The Ballad of the Marie Lloyd. I'm going to recite the opening verse, which is traditionally given to an announcer role within the mummers accompanying the Marie Lloyd. But brightest brimstone light on him, and bum his rafters black, that will not give when his fears are dim, the treasure found in the sack, in the mouth of the sack, in the steed breath, in the sweat of the hands, in the noose, in the black of the sack, in the night of death, shines what you dare not lose. Midnight, 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 midnight. Hark at the hands of the clock, under the womb of teeming night, Armadi tries your faith, and she has Chanty's crown of light. Spectre she knows and wraith, how sweet-tongued children are wickedly bomb by a swiveling's devil thrust. Mounting the night with a murderous horn, riding the starry gust. Midnight, 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 hark at the hands of the clock. Under the edge of the spray of the stars, in the hollow dark of a wave, we heard the fire iron stirring the bars, laying the ash of the grave. We saw your faith in the pin of the tongs, laying your fears at rest. You buried our bones with your drinking songs, and murdered what you love best. Midnight, 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 hark at the hands of the clock. But the pin goes in to the inmost dark where the dead and the living meet, and the clock is stopped by the shock of the spark or the stealthy patter of sleep. Like most midwinter creatures of lore, the Marie Lloyd can be seen as a symbol of the merriment necessary to see through the long, dark, and bracingly cold winter. She is here to escort the old year into the recess of time and spiritually clear the way for the new year to begin. In recent years, Welsh educators, folklorists, and historians have taken steps to preserve the Marie Lloyd, with crafts for the schoolchildren, books to entertain and educate, workshops, and other means of documentation so that this tradition remains alive and well in Wales. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Fireside Fairy Tales. The Narrators 3 wish you a very cozy Yuletide and a happy new year. Visit us at Spotify for podcasters, to answer episodic questions, send us voice messages, or to find out other ways you can help support the podcast. You can find our page at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod 
slash show slash once upon a rewatch. If you enjoy Once Upon a Rewatch, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on your platform of choice. Talk fairy tales with us on Instagram at Once Upon Rewatch. On Tumblr at onceuponarewatch.tumblr.com. The artwork for our podcast was by Lychee Riru. We want to say a very special thank you to the master of free music, Kevin McLeod. And remember, all plot devices come with a price.